I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We would like to begin this podcast by paying our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands that we're recording on today, the Hopi, Shumash, and Tongva people. And we would also like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land that the live podcast was recorded on in Port Townsend, the Sklalem and Shemakum people, and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Salad or Dali, through a great party, we all drank Bacardi, it got kind of gnarly. We're light as a feather, we're tougher than leather. Together we're weirder, we're weirder together. An absolutely epic weekend at Weird Together Incorporated, wasn't it, Ione? Yeah, we really, we really went through the Pacific Northwest. We left our mark on it. <laughs> we marked it. We presented ourselves. It we marked us. Marked our territory. We 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 peed in every corner of that town. We did. And we, are, <laughs> you're looking at me in just like total disapproval of that phrase. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, we have a great uh, episode today where we've actually got, so we did a live podcast taping up at ThingFest mm-hmm. and we've got today an incredible interview with John Roderick, uh, who's a musician who was in The Long Winters and then became sort of a social media pundit, as he'll tell us about, and then went through this mega very weird controversy where he got named Bean Dad and basically became a, a meme. And he goes into all of it. He was very generous and present, and I can't wait to uh, for people to hear. I that. knew but nothing about this. Beef. I know you. It was you totally bypassed you at the time. Well, it was like 2020. I mean, we had other things on our minds. I think except- I thought it was much longer ago, but we had a really nice time. We 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 really we haven't done that much this summer, so I was looking forward to going to Washington State. Um, all summer long, and it was just, it did not disappoint. It was incredible. You picked the Airbnb. I said, hey, I'm going to handle the logistics, like the travel and car. You handled the ACOM. Where did you put us? I put us in a Victorian, late 1800s apartment above a shop. And it was like living in a shop, a little museum, dusty, Victorian, old, wooden, I mean... I could have. It was a bit like a museum. A yeah. Bit. There I, were like baby shoes and stuff around. And yeah, stuff. little yeah. Ba- Victorian baby shoes. Like terrifying if it was Halloween. I mean, the town and there's a famous palace hotel that is meant to be haunted. But I'm the first night we slept in our little place, I kept on a bunch of lights because I was nervous. You were spooked. But then I was like, if we shut the door to this crazy attic bedroom, does the ghost want you to shut the door or leave it open? Why do we always assume there's just one ghost? Couldn't there be a, a pair? Like, if you were a ghost, you, you'd, I'd want to hang with you. I hope that if we ever do hauntings after we die, we do them together. There should be a collaboration that like this. That would be this. nice. Yeah. Yeah, and this place was nice. I was redecorating in my mind. It was like 400 too many, uh, you know, antiques in each room. I would have pared it down, pared it back. And also the sort of, I mean, I'm I'm like an aesthete. Is that the word? That is. That not, is I'm not word. an athlete, but no. I'm an aesthete. So the combo of new painted pottery that looks kind of like it's not of the time period and then the proper antiques, it's just like too cheesy. But then by the end of this holiday slash work, holiday i was getting really into the kind of corny faux um antique stuff well i like that you're inspired <laughs> i know i i think i can't i maybe i was just trying to make sense of the mishmash also we're having a, a romantic getaway and this airbnb was, was sexless victorian we decided victorian <laughs> aesthetic it's not it's just like it's so funny. So finally, we we were trying to be romantic, but we both sort of had to close our eyes, like as like because looking at all the like 
you know, patchwork and Victorian children, oldie timey photos on the walls. And it's just not sexy. Not at all. But we pulled it together. The first night there, we had a delicious seafood feast at Doc's Marina Grill. As our little Goldie's little friend Sevilla calls it. I love a fish feast. A fish feast. Gorgeous night. Then we met up with King Tough and his band, and we went out and did karaoke. Mm-hmm. We did a reverse engineered the last night. Yeah, we had like the end of tour party on the first night. Yeah, and the next day you were almost depressed because you said, why did I go too hard? The I night- know, I was like hungover and I'd oversang. I did different drum, which was your suggestion, which was great. But then I saw Kyle, King Tough, got up there and did uh, Tom Petty, you know, you don't know how it feels, you don't know. And it was like super chill. And I was like, that's the smart thing to do the night before you play a festival. But you have enough energy and enthusiasm and voice and presence for 10 front men. So doing one night where you sing a song full 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 tilt i wasn't worried uh, look i appreciate your belief well yeah you 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 know you have so much energy you can you can take a small pounding and go <laughs> go the next day that's what they say about me he takes a small <laughs> pounding but how about the next day the festival it was so firstly it was on the, in this place that was an old army barracks or fort, right? Where I guess they'd shot- An officer and a gentleman. I don't know. This is why I recognize it. I mean, I don't know if, if, if that's why I recognize this uh, military base, but it was, um, you know, a ghost <laughs> town, of course, now there haven't been, not of course, but people aren't using it as a military base. It's like there's an art class in one place and a lot of the buildings are kind of empty and some they've redone in a really nice way. Yeah. But I gag over movie sets and I, I love film. I love all of it. And so we got there, we watched, first thing we watched Kimya Dawson do a set, um, which was beautiful and she was on the jeremiah green stage who's the uh, drama from modest mouse who died last year and so it was very emotional because she'd been friends with him um then and, we saw and very northeastern weather in the summer roasting yeah yeah <laughs> blasting sun and then a bit of rain then like a little chilly and then very hot the weather, the and, weather was and, so good. And then we walked into the theater where we were going to be doing our pod taping and we met John Roderick, who was, who's going to be our guest with, he was moderating a talk with Nabil Ayers. Yes. Who we didn't know, who's Roy Ayers' son. And he'd also been the drummer in The Long Winters in John's band. And I mean, you t- we sat in on their talk and you tell me about that. That was so funny. So uh Nabil Ayer's dad everybody knows well everybody knows yes. the song everybody yes. loves the sunshine folks get down in the sunshine so anyway that's his dad and he's doing this talk he just wrote a book and it's about like meeting his father and as, as an adult having a father who everyone in the music biz admires and not knowing your father and then at one point I think John, who was moderating it, said, anyone else uh, relate <laughs> to this? And I don't know if anyone else could, but I could, because I have a musician dad that I got to know later in life. And it was so fabulous, because after, I mean, I think Nabil, this this man who has a similar situation to me, is just one of those people that makes you feel delicious being next to them. But it was like this delicious feeling to talk to him backstage about our joint father musician estranged situation Mm. and he's so lovely and wonderful uh it was felt like just like right and delicious and i love those unexpected kind of i don't know want to use the word healing it was not even it was just like it felt so good to talk to him it really it felt so cosmic that and we talk a little bit about that with John in the interview you're here. And then we, so then we saw MJ Lenderman play who we loved and then we did our pod. And that for me was, it felt like a real graduation, like doing a live podcast because we hadn't done it. And it's such an intimate thing between the two of us or our guests and our audience that I was really like, how's this going to work up on a stage? Well, but you it actually felt both, quite natural. Yeah. You have to both kind of talk as if it's just the two of us, but open up the energy to the audience, which is, I guess, like what you're doing with a play. You're, when you do a play, you are, and probably a performance as a musician, you have to completely be in it and in the storytelling, but also you are 
you know, you are presenting, presenting yeah, yeah. at the same time. But yeah, the day was funny because it wasn't like the biggest, craziest music festival in the world where the getting in and out is like an absolute nightmare. It was probably 10 or, 10 or 15,000 people, like not a crazy amount of people. Yeah. But still, once you get in, we get the credentials and the VIP parking and we're on the land, you don't really want to leave. Plus all of our work things were on the same day and spread out. So you end up doing this massive work day on the land on this military base. It's very beautiful. You know, it's in Washington state. So it it was like in between things, you know, wandering around and getting the food and chatting to people and stuff like that. It was a full, long, fun day. With all these chapters. Then I did my show. I played a set, which was super fun, in the same theater where we'd done the pod taping. I know, um, and I was concerned because it was in a big theater, but it was indoors. It was the only indoor stage, yeah. And I thought, how's this going to work? And it was amazing. Oh, thank you. It was yeah. so good. Because I was sort of preparing, you know, I like to kind of, I don't know. I I was sort of preparing, not for the worst, but just not to be let down by anything. Yeah. And every work- festivals are like that because there's so many unknowns. You got to be ready for anything, kind of. Yeah. And we and everything was sort of above and beyond. Yeah. And so then at the end of the night, DJ Dad Bud. Oh, so we saw Fleet Foxes firstly. That was oh fun. yeah, that we saw was- a bit of that. And then yes, then the DJ Dad Bud said in the chapel. Yeah. So there's a chapel, and it was kind of off the beaten path like it was part of the military base maybe or maybe not an old of course another old 1800s building and last minute you just we wandered in there also looking for an indoor bathroom because the port <laughs> i don't want to port a potty and there was a lot of indoor bathrooms in certain places that you can find anyway so you said well i want to see this anyway they hadn't really set up and you kind of called and said hey you know, are you, you know, you got the feeling maybe they almost forgot the DJ set was <laughs> happening that you were hired for. In any case, these really nice people, because there's something about Pacific Northwest yeah. people that are like, they're not no frilly, like, don't kiss your ass, don't give you like a lot of like Hollywood attention, but just nice. So anyway, these guys came in, set you up, but it was like kind of brightly lit chapel. So I thought, okay, what's the vibe going to be for DJing? Anyway, then I was preparing you. Listen, it may be three people. <laughs> it's the end of the festival. Maybe people don't want to come. What happened? It was epic. Like it was on the way out and I just, I was playing just my mashups and I had this whole set kind of planned and it started with, you know, 20 people, 50 people. By the end of the, the peak of the set, there was probably four or 500 kids just dancing and going crazy and loving it. And it was in like- this chapel, chock-a-block yeah. on the Chalkers. balcony, on the balcony, yeah. in the room. We were, people were like opening the windows for, for to get some fresh air because it was like, it was, and a lot of people in their early 20s. So what happened was as people were leaving the festival, when the festival ended- yeah, they heard music going on or something. This chapel being sort of off the beaten path happened to- line up with people just leaving the festival and so more and more and more people came in and it felt like they needed this town needed to dance yeah and they like let they let off some steam it at was the like end of the day. and so yeah all three things the podcast taping my solo set and the dj set were all great and i just really wanted to thank thing fest for having us up there it was such a great opportunity for us to like do all these forms of work and really just, it was just, it was such a beautiful thing. So thank you everyone for having us up there. The next day we had a day off. We went out to a, a sort of rainforesty area and got, I went under a waterfall and we had a beautiful time by a river yeah, there. Yeah. And across the street from our Airbnb, this- uh, Finisterre which was a delicious restaurant that we ate at so on the last night. Yeah, I'm sure that people was, know in Port Townsend, but it was- uh, Oh, and we also, but also the other place that we went to for breakfast was was worth mentioning that had the Kimya. Yeah, that was right on a dock, not like on the docks. Like it was- The Blue Moose Cafe yeah. in Port Townsend had an amazing breakfast. And like they had a Kimya Dos and hash. They had all these kind of d delicious breakfast. The food was incredible up there. I had just so many great meals and great coffee. Anyway, awesome weekend. We're now back in LA, 
but we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to play the John Roderick interview. To my knowledge, I think this is the first time John has really spoken at length publicly about the whole bean dad thing. So I asked him before, I was like, do you, is there anything you want to talk about or not talk about? He's like, I'm happy to talk about anything. And I just was really grateful for both his candidness, but also just how he's able to articulate some really nuanced points about his experience. And so thank you, John, so much for joining us. So uh, you'll hear that right after this break. Together we're weirder, we're weirder together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, beautiful babies. I'm Ben Lee. And I'm Ioni Sky, And we are the hosts of Weirder Together podcast. If you enjoy our podcast, you might like some of the podcasts that our friends make and release on the Weirder Together podcast network. Like punk legend Jello Biafra's Renegade Roundtable. Multidisciplinary artist Brock Enright's trippy sonic journey, Vague Data. Making ways, the art of music, an exploration of the ways that musicians and visual artists communicate and collaborate. Raw Impressions with Lou Barlow and Adele Barlow. I love that, one of my favorite married couples. And The Blag Show with Sarah and Sally, a collection of never-before-heard vintage interviews with legendary artists. And The Future of Being a Musician with Ben Lee. Find these pods on your favorite podcast platform now. Love ya. Should we bring out our guest? Yeah, let's do it. So um, we have a great guest today who's someone I first met a long time ago in the music world and I've, I've admired every uh, sort of incarnation of his career and I'm really excited to have him join us on Weirder Together today. Please welcome to the stage Mr. John Roderick. You. Welcome! <laughs> Our first guest to wear sunglasses. Yeah, well, I figured you guys are pretty cool. <laughs> I'm just going to be the sunglass guy and, uh, try and keep, keep my cool levels high. This morning, we were here when you hosted the, moderated the talk with Nabil Ayers. Did anyone see that this morning? Was anyone that around? That was good. I saw that. That was it's, very good. Uh, Nabil was in The Long Winters, John's band, and, but he's also written a beautiful memoir. But it felt so like, I don't know, I feel like some of these connections, they're like, they feel a little bit destined because he, you know what I mean? Like he grew up with a rock star dad and I only did two and... It all just felt, I don't know, I'm feeling very, it feels cosmic right now. Yeah, that, that was unexpectedly nice for me to talk to him about that shared experience. When we were driving out here, I said, you know, you're going to meet Ioni, and she also has a yeah. thing that you guys might bond over, and I think as soon as he met you, it felt very electric. Yeah. It's a challenge to have a rock star dad, as my daughter will attest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys both had rock star dads that were pretty hard to know. Yes, very hard to know. That's a challenge. Yeah, and it's nice to, yeah, I've had friends who also have had a similar situation, but his situation was, because they 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 ended up having of you know more a closer relationship with their fathers even if when they were really little the dad was like away but he he and I like that felt very meeting our fathers as adults is is a shared experience it's right. kind of cool and can be really dis- destabilizing right you're an adult yeah. you feel like you've got your whole life figured out and who you are and then yeah. all of a sudden a small person in the form of your father arrives on the scene and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I knew who I was and yeah. now I've got this to contend with. Especially since both of your fathers are legendary cultural figures. You're yeah. wrestling with, having known them the whole time, known of them. Yeah, I know. And it's that thing of separating art from, you know, like having someone play such beautiful, and also my dad, who's Donovan, the songs are so beautiful. And then, and then, and and he is. We actually do have some sort of relationship today, 
But um, it's that separating, you know, as a kid, I would think, how could someone write the most beautiful lyrics and not want me every single day? You know, this kind of sad thing. But then as I you get older, you sort of understand more, you know, whatever. It's complicated. But yeah, it's uh, that whole thing of an artist and, and the art. Just hard to be a good musician and a good person. <laughs> and, your, and your generation, it's, it was such a, it, not to, I'm defending him, but the, that generation, it was not. They didn't have Oprah. That's no. in fact what I told him when we had the talk <laughs> of what happened. I was like, I totally let him off the hook. I was like, well, you didn't have Oprah. Like, you know, you didn't have all those like self-help books and the understanding. He was like, exactly. No, Ecatole. Yeah. <laughs> but John, you're, so I was excited when we knew we were going to chat to you and I wanted to like just dive in a little bit to your Wikipedia and all that. I, I didn't know about your parents. Like I've always viewed you, okay, because I was a Long Winters fan um, and I'll never forget, actually, um, Lara, our mutual friend, she'd been on tour with Nada Surf, and it was right, they had an advanced copy, I guess, of um, When I Pretend to Fall, and she'd fallen in love with that record, and then she came back to our band, and we were listening to it obsessively, but I always viewed you as, like, super intelligent. I think that's, like, part of your contribution to music, that, like, you brought intelligence to it. Your parents were super intelligent, right? Like, that's where it comes from. <laughs> I guess that's... <laughs> I just said something totally radical there, didn't I? Yeah. You know, my dad was a World War II veteran. So he was already a generation, you know, even older than, okay. than most of my peers' parents. And both of them were, were very smart and very thoughtful and accomplished. But, of course, they got divorced in the early 70s. And in spite of being really smart and intuitive and intelligent, they had a, a bitter divorce that they could not get past. And so all through the 70s and 80s, these two very, very, you know, wonderful people were in this petty little divorce bicker loop. And I think I, I grew up maybe at too young of an age, real, because they were both admired by everybody. Right, so I watched the other adults admire my parents, but I felt like I couldn't quite trust them. Right, they weren't making good choices. And then I watched other adults kind of, you know, pay them a lot of worshipful attention. And so I developed this feeling like maybe they weren't making good choices either. If, and I think way too young, I was like, oh, adults? There's nothing special about them, right? Like, you can't, there, there was no point in my life where I felt like, well, the adults have got it covered. All I have to do is just sit here and play. That's funny, and then you were saying this morning that you've, in music, it was all arrested development kind of kids, right, around you. So it's like you end up recreating these dynamics, I guess, right? Well, and that's the, you know, we've all, in our way, spent a lot of time in cultures where uh, we're allowed to remain kind of infantile. And yeah. the more successful you are, the more there are people there to wipe your nappy or whatever. And so it cultivates, you know, a bunch of people in their 30s who just aren't really good at anything, you know, except yeah. for like, wow! Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Yeah, that's right. Like, they're good at being on stage, but the rest of the time they're kind of, in, you know, almost incapacitated by the way people treat them. Do you think if the long winters like had you know crossed that threshold in go from being like the credible cool indie band that other bands love to being like the mega famous kind of thing do you think that would have kind of kept you from maturing in ways that do you know what i mean like i think sometimes like success actually freezes maturity for people i i I've thought about it a lot. If I had been more successful or if at any time I had had money, I would be a monster. <laughs> I wouldn't have been good at either thing, right? If I had had money or had been widely lauded, uh, I, I just had all of the wrong components to have processed that and remained grounded and reasonable. I would have absolutely become terrible. You know, I, there, a lot of my family went to uh, an Ivy League school. 
And I didn't because I was a flop in, in high school. And I've thought a lot about it. If I had gone to Yale, even if I didn't have money and hadn't been successful, just having gone to Yale, I would be an absolute asshole. <laughs> because I would have had this little crown, this little paper crown, I went to Yale. And you meet people like that, right? They did one thing and they're ruined. And so I th I'm very grateful for the fact that God, in their infinite wisdom, was like, nope, not for you. No money. Also, no fame, really. Mm, no, no real success of any kind. Good luck. I know. I think, like, I always think I was like a sellout waiting to happen. It just happened that no one was buying. Like, I would have loved to have a very conventional, like, I look at, and this isn't to disparage these artists, but I look at people like Jack Johnson or John Mayer or people that have made these, like, steady, big careers building businesses as, like, affable male singer-songwriters that make records that sound great on the radio that are just... And in your summer, you go see them play. And, like, I, I think I really wanted that career. And I think in some ways the career I'm ending up with or that's in the process constantly of being recreated is much more interesting as a result of not, not having had that type of success. Do you think? What if you'd like had a, like a, I don't know, Julia Roberts career or something? I mean, I think for me, I had almost the reverse where I didn't think I was like successful or famous. So I, I think I could have used... And could still use a little more of it. But I don't know. I, I think I, I didn't have that. But I do feel um, a selfishness, you know. I think of some, some famous actresses, especially from maybe the 40s or 50s, you know, you, you, there's a t I think of them as maybe they weren't the best mothers in the world. I'm not just talking about the Joan Crawford thing. I mean just that, that um, there's a personality of an actress that I think there's like a, or maybe it's an artist, there is a selfishness and a childlikeness that, you know, but I was born also to be a mom, like I was one of those little three-year-olds that wanted a baby, you know, I always wanted it, but I still- Babies have, having babies, so. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, but uh, I, I do feel like an artist's selfishness, but maybe that's just a human thing, but uh, I don't know, as far as, yeah, I was sort of always surprised when people knew who I was or I don't know why. I, well, I feel like I need a Let me little, tell you, we landed in Seattle yesterday and there was someone with some headshots uh, to oh, yeah. sign and he didn't come up to me. Oh, those guys. That's true. That was true. <laughs> those guys are so weird. <laughs> Do you see actually yesterday there was um, the guy, Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind. There was like a video that went kind of viral yesterday of him, a guy bringing a stack of headshots up. And he said, Stephen, I'm a huge fan. Could you sign this? And he's like, name one of my songs. <laughs> and the guy, they got in this kind of tiff. And um, he was, Stephen Jenkins was actually uh, totally right about it. He's like, I don't want to feed this secondary market on eBay of- Did he know the songs? No. No, that's the thing. Yeah. They, they then sell them online. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had friends experience this, right? The, the guy with the headshots. And it's just, a, it's just a racket. He's printed out a thousand. I did get uh, Laura Flynn Boyle mailed. Um, oh, they sent it to you asking you to sign it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I think that's a, brilliant, uh, that's a brilliant ploy to say, like, who am I? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them. So, wait, John, with, where does music now, you know, if you guys don't know the Long Winters, you've got to go back and, like, listen to those records. But you haven't put out music in a while, right? Um, you gave that beautiful song to that project that I was working on. That's right. Silver Lake Chorus. It's a choir, 26-piece choir from L.A. And John wrote, we had songs from Justin Vernon, Bonnie Vare, and Tegan and Sarah, and John wrote a song that was gorgeous. Um, but, yeah, where does music fit into your identity now of when you think about your creativity and your life? Yeah, I had a real... Uh the Long Winters got to a place where a lot of people were invested in the idea that our next record was going to be a really big deal. And when we were making a record, there was a, a documentary film crew that set up in the studio. And there were a lot of people in indie rock 
that were really feeding me this like, oh man, you know, you guys are primed and your next record's gonna just And that record came out and it didn't It did what it actually should have done, which was better than the last one. You know, we had a career that was going like this. But that just primed the pump of, those, of that mentality. Oh, dude, now your next record. It, because now you're really set up. And that energy, your next record, uh, it, at a certain point, I became very inhibited. I didn't, well, I wasn't sure what, I, what, what that meant. And it wasn't that I was afraid of fame. Creatively, I didn't know what that meant. To sit down with a guitar and be like, well, let's see, what's the next record gonna do? I was hamstrung. How, do, how, how the hell do you put those chords together? These aren't the chords of like, all my songs are, are basically, why didn't that relationship work? Why did that, why didn't that woman treat me so badly? But how do you sit down and go, well, which, ver which uh, sad relationship song is gonna put my band over the line? Yeah. What a drag. I know, I think that's so common for like an artist as well, like, you know, Basquiat or whoever, like they, you're doing, and then there's this, all of a sudden this pressure, your third show has to be, you know, so amazing. And a lot of people, unless you're, I guess like I'm thinking of, trained like if you're a classical musician and you follow you know a symphony and this and that but if you're creating from you know it's sort of like we just saw that elephant six documentary and like when yeah, you're alone really... in a house and where were they in Athens Athens you know and and there's no pressure on you then you know it's it's just yeah it is really tricky being an actor and having a script that's also easier because you, you know what you're, you're like, okay, I have to do this scene. I have to serve the story, you know, but you're not, Coppola, like Coppola probably felt that too. Like I'm doing these movies and then all of a sudden you, you like, where did Coppola go? And then you know, then you're like, well, the pressure to keep. He was directing Jack. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and my lyrics and songs are very impressionistic. Yeah. There's, I never sat down and said like, this song's about, Darfur, right? They were always just sort of like emotion poems. Yeah. And, and so very hard to try and fit that into a, you know, you guys are going to be as big as the new pornographers. And I'm like, well, first of all, there's nobody bigger than the new pornographers. <laughs> but, That's a know. jam, though. That, that, that one hit was quite a hit. That was a good song. <laughs> but, but confusingly, there's a lot of people that think that what happened to me was that social media arrived. I was very early on Twitter, and I found this new outlet where I would write a tweet, and I would get all this feedback, this instantaneous feedback from around the world. And this was when, if you had 15,000 followers on Twitter, you were like some kind of hot dog. And, you know, my name was appearing in magazine articles, like, well, you know, what you, this guy on Twitter, and people were really giving me this, uh, this instant gratification. And I became absorbed in the culture that, uh, that originally came up out of Twitter of comedians and nerds and quippers. We all just had quips all day. It's cultural. It was cultural criticism, ongoing, right? right. Yeah. Like, it was humor like humor and all of it. Yeah, it was a writing platform for pith and I was so pithy and had never had any way to express that except in between songs like hey how's everybody doing out there but now I had you know potentially global audience and, and you know early days of Twitter it was all tastemakers on there yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody was smart or somebody yeah. well social media for sure has rewarded because uh, I feel similarly that I'm obviously I still make music and everything, but I've really appreciated the ability to share other aspects of my psyche because it is very numbing. The act of touring, particularly, you're dealing with degenerates yeah. all day. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking, but but you know, it's like it's like it, it's a hedonistic art form. 
that is around the nightlife and the dark underbelly of, and to get to use your intelligence and your wit is, was like, is a great relief. Music continues to play a huge role in my life, but it's extremely personal, private. During the pandemic, all I did was play music, right? I, I have a, a bass guitar on my couch that's, the amp is always on. And I'm downstairs using loopers, making these, you know, these giant sort of loop symphonies, and I haven't played any of them for anybody. I've got 10 years worth of music that I've made that I haven't, not only not released, I don't even play for my family, but, you know, four times a week I go down, shut the door to the studio, and spend hours just in these, like, loops. And long ago, I lost the ability to tell whether any of it was good or not. Can I have them when I have insomnia? And I'll, it'll, maybe it'll help me f go to sleep. <laughs> I'm looking for the right music and sound to help. Uh... If you want a niche market, this is, yeah. She's it. At some point, I decided that I was not going to write songs in 4-4 anymore, which is the pathway to commercial success. <laughs> if you're writing songs that are in 7-4, boy, the market is just, <laughs> just craves it. But it's very hypnotic. But it's amazing That's because good. what you're saying is that you, you, your performative tendencies, you, those needs were being met through, other, through podcasting and through Twitter and all that stuff. And music became a more internal experience for you, a more private experience. I mean, the, the, the Twitter led to an entire career for me where suddenly I was, a, well, often a guest on a program like this, except in New York and San Francisco and London. A pundit. I became a kind of person that was like, what is he here for? I remember I was at the Chateau Marmont at some taping of, of something, and at one point I was talking, and Mel Brooks was there. And he turned and said, who are you again? <laughs> and I was at a loss to explain to Mel Brooks who I was. Why am I here? Boy, you know, now that you ask... There's zero reason why I am in the same room with Mel Brooks, but I was. Oh God, you know? Amazing. But wait, you have a great speaking voice. Do you, do you ever do like voiceovers and stuff as well? Or have you ever done that? I have that starlet mentality mm -hmm. where I keep waiting to get discovered in a, in a chocolate shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to audition no, I know. Or, or try. I want someone to see me sitting at a malt shop and be like, he's so beautiful. Yeah. Huh? And so, you know, I've, been at, I've, done, I've done a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a kind of like, um, I have a phlegmatic humor, right? My voice has a little bit of a kind of... Uh, yeah. And I, I, I see people cast in, on television shows all the time where I'm like, well, that's kind of a chubby, burly guy. <laughs> Why aren't I getting those chubby, burly guy roles? Because <laughs> every TV show's got at least one chubby, burly guy now. Uh, but I'm just not. I think if I showed up for that audition, there'd be all these guys that are just slightly chubbier and burlier. Right, yeah. Like, well, I can't play the sheriff on that show. Compare and despair, <laughs> yeah. Um, I am, I'm also interested in, like, it feels like now enough time has passed from the whole, you know, controversy on Twitter and the, the bean dad thing. If the, You can go down a rabbit hole if you want to know, but John got unwittingly sort of became... It's, it, I'm interested in this idea of, like, much like when someone wins the lottery, someone that unwittingly starts playing a cultural role and almost becomes a meme. Yeah. Um, what your reflections are on that period and what you learned about someone who you're so interested in culture and so much was revealed about culture through that whole thing. And I'm so curious how you now think about it. Well, as, as we're watching the death of Twitter, right? Like the culture there died a long time ago, but none of us could leave because just like any drug, it's like, the cocaine doesn't feel good anymore, but maybe if I do a little more, mm -hmm. I'll feel that feeling that I used to feel. And Twitter's been like that, I think, ever since uh, 2016. That election and the way the politics took over, it just became a bad place. But we all stayed. 
now it's dying. And so there are all these kind of reflections on like, what was great about Twitter? And for people my age and a little younger, we all talk about, oh, in 2010, Twitter was just like so awesome. But I, people would send me stuff that was happening on Twitter in the last few months. And for Generation Z, there were a lot of tweets of people saying, man, remember Bean Dad? That was so awesome. Like, it really brought us all together. Like, everybody was on the same page. That Against this, you. That this one dude <laughs> was a total dick. <laughs> those, and we'll never see those days again. And, you know, when that happened to me, it was ne- it, very quickly that the character of Bean Dad was its own meme, right? Um, it was never tied to me by name. And no journalist ever reached out to me. No one ever want, no one cared who I was, right? It was all about what was happening culturally and what Bean Dad, what it triggered in everybody. Wow, surely like there was, those, oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. Oh no, just those super, those superheroes or those that, that are this thing. That's so interesting that you were just you and there was this character almost. That's interesting. Yeah, I was just saying, but surely like just losing the platform, like there's the, I don't know whether there's financial fallout of that or just the lack of daily validation in sharing ideas. Like, that's real stuff if it becomes... Even if the place is a make-believe place, it's still a playground you're choosing to play in. And that, I don't know, that must have been a trip just for that suddenly to shift in that way. Well, it was. I mean, at one level, it's, it, was, it was a disaster. Over a dozen people called Child Protective Services. They showed up at our house... They took my daughter aside and interviewed her to make sure that, you know, they said, what's the worst thing about your dad? And she was like, well, I'll tell you. He says he's going to play Barbies with me. And then he comes downstairs and starts building a Lego thing. (laughs) And I say, you said you were going to play Barbies. And he says, I'm building them a house. And she's like, but he's just playing Legos. And the Child Protective Services is like, okay, anything else? But I, you know, I lost about a third of my income, and a lot of my friends, not fake friends, real friends, were pushed into a corner where people were like, are you going to denounce this guy, or are you going to reveal that you are not an ally? And they had a choice, you know. And they had to denounce me because to not denounce me was to betray, they felt, to betray their own audience. And I absolutely understood. But it was really rough to watch your actual friends say, you know. And so, and a lot of those people I haven't talked to since. And that was devastating. Yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't a like, oh, you found out who your real friends are. Because they really were my real friends. Yeah. It was just one of those like, well, you know, they would often text me and like, sorry, I have to do this. And it's, it's like, oh, uh, you're taking on water and you're going to sink the boat, so we're going to have to cut you. It's full Lord of the Flies. Like it really is. You know, yeah, like yeah. it's, and, and, uh, and I had tremendous sympathy for all of my peers and collaborators because it was an event that happened to us all. It's just that I was the center. Have you ever, are you going to do some writing about it? Or I just feel like there's such a story, what you're saying now, the story is like so specific and almost because of the low stakes of the actual quote unquote offense yeah. makes it more interesting for this type of critical examination, you know? The New York Times asked me if I would write a, a, an article about it, right? A, um, yeah, a description kind of not, they didn't want me to relitigate it. They just wanted me to describe what happened, what that was like. Mm. And uh, I worked on it for a while and it just was, a, it's really hard to know. Again, it's kind of like the record album. Like there's a version of this article that really nails it. And there are kind of 500 versions of this article that doesn't that you know that 
falls short and sort of make it worse in a way right it's yeah like- it's nice getting like getting older and knowing like with you know things you do and your work and stuff like now at this point I kind of am like ah yeah that's not the right project at this time but like when in your 20s you just would probably do something you know you just don't know when to say yes or no and but isn't it nice like getting older you're just like yeah maybe just not now or I haven't nailed it yet or you know but it's so nice don't you find well, you've kind of even like with your because Ioni's writing a memoir at the moment oh, yeah. and it's something that it's going to be amazing Major bidding war, five publishers were all after it after it got leaked to page six, the proposal. Very exciting. I didn't, li- we still don't know, but I'm whoever did that sort of was a favor. Yeah, I think way. your agent has plausible deniability. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's been interesting with, with things like that, with telling your story, because I think it's theoretically you could do it at any time, but then there's moments where it actually feels right. Yeah. And that's so. I think that's what artists have to do in general, like whether it's with an album or an article or a book, you have to be deeply attuned to like the vibrations of culture. And that's what makes people good at Twitter, as silly as Twitter is. They understand what's the moment when you need to say something and when to stay out of a conversation and when to chime in. And yeah. That was another terrible thing about Bean Dad was that I was on Twitter for hundreds of these where I also felt like I needed to make a joke about pizza rat or you know some somebody that lost their shit in a supermarket. And then all of a sudden I watched a lot of people I knew really well struggling because they really wanted to be part of the this is what all the kids were saying when they were like we'll never have that day again. A day where everybody was making a joke about the same thing. And and I watched a lot of friends and I felt it myself, like, boy, I wish I could make a joke about being dad. <laughs> you need an alt account to like to joke about yourself. Because I've got a lot of great jokes. I know, I needed an alt, alt account. But that feeling of like, oh, and you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm talking about it now. Like, I'm sure that I will talk about it. But. Yeah, culture's so, it's so funny because it's like, I have this song I wrote on my last record called Like This or Like That. And it's, the song starts with a line, it may come as some surprise, but I've always been more of a Stones than a Beatles guy. And there's a path where the road divides and your feet can only go down one road at a time. And it's all about the arbitrary nature of cultural tribalism, yet it's also the fun of culture. Like if we don't make teams and kind of yell at each other a little bit, it's if we're too enlightened, it all becomes everything's equally valuable and like we're not in the fun of the game anymore or something. About a decade ago, I, wrote a, I had a column for the Seattle Weekly where I was writing about music. And, you know, because of attention deficit disorder, right, I was always writing it the night before or the morning of. And it was always just like, music, music, music. And one, one day I was like, oh, yeah, let's see. I'd had a conversation with a friend where we were like, you know, punk rock really kind of screwed with our heads. We made a lot of decisions based on whether or not something was punk. Not musically, but just like, are those shoes punk? Would saying that at a party be punk or not punk? oh, that whole thing that you did was very not punk. And it's like, we, we were fucking with ourselves and in a, in a way getting way ahead of what we should have been thinking about. Way ahead of where our creative space should have been. We were already judging it according to what we thought was punk, which is this completely... So I wrote an article that was a, a, it's supposed to be a funny article, mostly teasing Seattle people and that the editor of the Seattle Weekly was like, oh, this is great. And they made it their cover story. And the title was Punk Rock is Bullshit. And I woke up the next day and there were 200,000 comments (laughs) from people saying, you don't know shit about punk rock. My Orlando Youth Center saves teens every day. And you're here telling me that, you know, what I realized was rock and roll is a church for a lot of people. And I had fucked with Jesus. And the, you know, it was the first time I'd experienced rage directed at me. And over and over I was like, I have slept on so many shitty floors playing rock music. 
I have been in every fucking shitty rock scene you could be in. I know how important rock and roll is. I just happen to think, punk rock is bullshit. Ha <laughs> ha. And uh, you know, and all of a sudden, like I'm at, you know, I'm at war with the guys in Fugazi, and I'm like, I got no, I got no beef with you guys. So it was, you know, I stepped into a tribalism on purpose, eyes open, like ha ha, this will be funny, and it defined a couple of years for me. I ran for city council here, and people would come up to me after, yeah, I'd give a speech on transit, and. Afterwards, there'd be some guy that would walk by and go, Pug Rock is bullshit. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I've got a plan for gondolas in Seattle and this guy's mad about it. <laughs> well, uh, totally defying the three-act structure. Very weird note to end on, but John Roderick has officially declared punk rock is bullshit. He is at war with Fugazi yep. and he is writing an op-ed for the New York Times this week on the rise and fall of yep. Bean Dad. Just, just write, Bean Dad hates punk rock, and then nobody will connect it to me at all. John, thank you so much for joining us for our first ever Weird Together live pod. Uh, you, you're amazing. Thank you. Uh, beautiful babies, that's what we call the yeah, people. Yeah, we call our audience. If you, if you want to give it, because we're recording this, so if you want to give an official shout-out, we do like to say, bid farewell to the beautiful babies. So you could, you could end us on that note. Oh, it's a, I love the beautiful babies. Yeah. Woo! Sell yourself on blue diamonds Call vice, it takes a day to explain the crime You laugh at what the LA Times says about us But delight at my first try at being sly The third page, time for a break You make a gang sign, framing your face Time for the hard light, time to get dressed Good luck, God bless Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.